Hebrews 10, 32 to 39. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. You may recall that this chapter tells us how to live practically the doctrines of Christ previously taught. Christ's work is summed up, remember, in verses 19 to 21 this way. By his cleansing, we can enter heaven's worship, and he is also our helper. We as priests worship God our helper is a great high priest. So we're urged to worship God corporately, to keep believing the promises of God for our future, and to help each other persevere in love and obedience by continuing to meet together and by speaking in an edifying way one to another. Now the rest of this chapter showcases two opposite responses to these truths and practices. Remember that Hebrews is fundamentally a call to continue to hear God's voice in Scripture, to keep on believing to the end so we will be saved. And our preacher has set before us two cases. The first case is that of apostasy. We looked at it last week. One of the ways to respond to the truths of the perfect person and perfect work of Jesus Christ is to reject it all. That leads to destruction. Verse 39. The other way to respond is to endure in faith and so to preserve our souls in salvation. Also verse 39. So now let's look at the second case asking God to give us grace that we might ultimately all receive what he has promised. The second case, salvation. First notice, he begins with their actual history. This is in verses 32 to 34. This is in stark contrast with the first case. Verse 32 begins with but or but instead, 
Remember, the first case began with a theoretical history. What would happen if? This second case begins with their actual history. There's no if here. What the preacher describes in these verses is what they all endured in the past after becoming Christians. Remember, he says, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, after their conversion, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. So these verses accurately summarize their historical response to persecution. As new Christians, this is how they reacted to suffering. What was this response? Well, let's look at some of the words that the preacher uses to describe their actual history. He says they endured a hard struggle. That means they remained constant in a situation which he likens to an athletic event so difficult that it involved suffering. And yet they persevered. For some of their, them, their suffering included public reproach and insult. It was as if they were led up onto a theater stage and publicly mocked. Now others of them escaped that particular trial, but then what did they do? They purposely joined their fellow sufferers. When some of them were thrown into prison, the others didn't desert them, but sympathetically cared for them. Now this would have often led in Roman times, and it apparently did for these believers, to the loss of possessions. Simply because if you were in prison, your home was unprotected and was very likely to be looted. And of course, if you were in there, you were a bad person anyway, and you didn't deserve to keep those things. And the preacher reminds them that they did all of this with joy. With joy. How could that be? By the right use of that enlightened, verse 32, mind. <laughs> they knew, they knew they had a better and more permanent piece of property in the age to come. This future hope was so real to them that it changed the way they lived, that it actually made them rejoice that they could suffer for the name of Christ and lose these things. It didn't matter. Oh, wait, it did matter. It mattered in a positive way. It was reason for joy. And the preacher, what is he doing? He's asking all of them, in contrast to the first way, he's saying, remember this, recall this, don't forget this, this was you. If you act like this, certain things are going to happen. Now, let's, let's think back. Um, what was your real life experience? Recall that. Remember that. Don't forget that. Why is he doing this? Why is the preacher rehearsing these things? Well, there are several reasons, I think. 
But the most immediate is to show them that they have been living out the results of believing in Christ. Their history showed preeminently that they held fast to the confession of their hope without wavering. They were fulfilling verse 23. Their history showed that they were actively thinking about how to stir one another up to love and good works. And then they actually performed them. They didn't even give up meeting together. They simply moved to prison and encouraged one another. He's telling them this to remind them that they have all the marks of being Christians. They don't have the marks of apostasy. They have the marks of salvation. They have more than a profession. They have the possession of Christianity because they're actually living it out. But their struggle wasn't over yet, and so they had a continuing duty. We see this at the beginning of verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence. Because you have endured to this point, because you have believed, because you have acted in, in a Christian way, don't throw all that away. The word confidence is used several times in important ways in the book of Hebrews. It denotes trust or faith. The recognition of the right or authority of someone else, uh, Jesus Christ or God. And assurance. It's really all of those things bundled together in Hebrews. Faith, the recognition of a right from Jesus and assurance. So in chapter three, verse six, we are told, we are God's household if we hold firmly to our confidence. You can truly be said to be the house of God if we hold firmly to this belief in Christ and his promises for our future. In chapter 4, verse 16, we are told to approach the throne of grace in prayer with confidence, with an understanding of our right to come, and with assurance bordering on boldness. Remember back in verse 19, it says we have a right, we have confidence, we have a right, and therefore assurance to enter heaven itself in worship through faith in Christ and his cleansing blood. That's where we are right now. So this verse calls us not to throw away our faith, our assurance, our boldness, our hope, but to continue on in them. This is the opposite of apostatizing. Apostatizing is throwing all of those things away. 
Instead, they are called to value the great gift they have been given in Jesus Christ and hold on to it. Do not throw this away, he commands them. So that's their history. That's their duty. Now, next, here's the reason for this duty. That's found at the beginning of verse 36. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. This verse tells us a reason why they should not throw away their confidence. For, because, right? Here's the reason. Because you have need of endurance. They had begun well, right? Remember their history. But more was required. They had to keep on doing these kinds of things. They had to keep on enduring. The word means to patiently persevere. To joyfully continue in the confidence of Christ. He's saying, don't throw your faith away because you have to keep going. Think 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 13 right now. That's exactly where Israel failed. They had a faith of a sort. It was temporary. It didn't result in good works. And because they didn't endure, what happened? They were destroyed. You know, as Reformed Christians, we revel in the doctrine of the preservation of the saints. That lovely truth that the power of God keeps us unto salvation. But this powerful preserving shows up in our lives. It's not some mythical, mystical something in heaven or in God's mind that doesn't show up in our lives. If God is our Father and is preserving us, we will be preserved. <laughs> we will live. If you are on the ocean, And you somehow fell in off the boat, perhaps, and were floundering. If someone said, oh, don't worry, I have a life preserver. We will preserve you. And they threw it to you. But you didn't grab it. Or it wasn't inflated. Or it was too small for you. Or if it didn't actually preserve you, was it a life preserver? In name only. In name only. Christians persevere. God preserves us so that we are able to persevere. Every genuine Christian does that. They endure. They do not apostatize. Oh, yes, they may take a step back for every two forward. They may have great ups and downs. They may go for frightening periods of time, feeling and even being far from God. But real Christians 
imperfectly, but genuinely and continually hold on to their confidence. They are preserved because God Almighty is preserving them. But verse 36 adds something additional and important to these doctrines. It tells us that enduring is a need. You have need. This is not a nice extra. This is not the way you get extra bonus points and goodies in heaven. This is apostasy or salvation, heaven or hell, destruction or life. This is a need. Endurance is in that context a need. It is a necessity, a requirement. Every true Christian never loses his salvation and always makes it to heaven. But every true Christian does that by enduring, by persisting, by persevering. If he does not endure, according to this verse, he doesn't obtain the reward. Do you remember chapter 3, verse 14? For we have come to share in Christ. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Partial temporary confidence is not saving faith. Again, the parable of the sower and the seeds explains that clearly. In Pilgrim's Progress, every true believer made it to the celestial city. Some did it by running. Others did it by manfully taking out their sword and hacking at the lions, etc. Some made it by walking. Some made it by crawling or limping or leaning on a cane. If they didn't keep going, they didn't reach heaven. They had, as our verse says, they had a need for endurance. Endurance in what again? In faith in Christ's cleansing blood, in the worship of God, in hope, in love, in good works, in meeting together, in encouraging one another, in doing the will of God, right there in the verse. You see, disobedience and apostasy are traveling companions. They're on a shared journey to hell. Doing the will of God, though, verse 36, is the companion of keeping the faith. And the road those two travel on leads to heaven. Don't misunderstand me. Neither the Hebrews' good works or your love merit eternal life. That isn't the basis of your claim to being right with God or gaining heaven. But this enduring and these lists of the will of God that I've just given out from our text, these are what I've called before to you non-meritorious necessities. There are things you must do to get to heaven. You must repent. You must believe. And neither of those two things in themselves 
gains you merit with God. Your faith doesn't save you. Your faith reaching out its empty hand to a perfect Christ, he saves you, yes. Turning from your sin, turning to God, that kind of repentance, that, that's right, that's good, that's necessary, but in itself, it doesn't save you. Well, neither does endurance, but you must do it. <laughs> it doesn't earn you points, but you must continue on. These are some of the non-meritorious necessities of salvation. According to chapter 12, verse 14, which is very plain um, and even stronger, it says that without these kinds of things, you won't see God. It's not, well, you only have three crowns, not nine. Oh, you'll be living in a, in a pretty shabby golden mansion. No, you will not see God. You will be destroyed. You will be under the fury of fire. Or if these things are found in your life by the grace of God, you will be with him face to face forever, experiencing eternal life. So you must not throw away your faith in Christ. That's the point. You and I must not throw away your faith in Christ. You need to endure in doing the will of God. If you do, what will be the result? Well, next, there's a reward. Versus uh, the second half of verse 35 and the second half of verse 36. A great reward is promised to those who keep on believing. And this reward is the opposite of destruction. It's receiving what God promised in the new covenant in Christ. It is, according to the end of verse 39, the preserving, the salvation of our souls. It's eternal life in the heavenly, holy places. But then he reinforces this point. You say, Pastor, enough. We get it. <laughs> you, you've hit the table uh, enough times. You've been forceful. We get it. Well, God repeats it. So we'll repeat it. All right? And this is uh, verses 37 and 38 where it's reinforced. This point is reinforced. You see, this doctrine that he's telling them is not new to the New Testament. This is Bible doctrine. This is a Bible truth. It's taught in the entire Bible. And what he does is he takes a couple of Old Testament passages and he glues them together. And here's what it says. Yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Christ will return at the right time. He will find the righteous living by faith. He will not examine their lives and find a one-time exhibition of faith followed by a life of shrinking back. No. The righteous live. They keep on living by faith. Yes, spiritual life is begun by faith, but they keep on living by that same faith. 
Pastor, I'm having a hard time. Does this doctrine conflict with the doctrine of justification? Not at all. These two doctrines are best friends. And if you can get both of them together in your little mind, like my little pea brain, you will be a stable Christian. You will be a balanced person who understands the freedom they have of, in forgiveness in Christ and the need to be ho personally holy. Yes. To deny one or the other is dangerous for your soul. Right? Justification is our forgiveness and righteous standard, righteous standing with God. It does come through an act of faith. Faith unites us with Christ and we are declared what he is, perfect. But the faith that alone justifies is never alone. I hope you have that memorized. The faith that alone justifies is never alone. The Puritans liked to call faith the queen of graces. The king, of course, was Christ. But faith was the queen of graces, and this queen, in walking, uh, had a huge train that followed her. And what was the train? The train was, were all the other graces of the Christian life. The queen faith never walks without her train. She never saves without bringing with her all these other graces. Oh, these other graces don't, don't unite you to Christ. Only faith does that. Only faith justifies. But the faith that justifies is never alone. Right? Or to put it, uh, another way we've been talking, the way the Old Testament talks, faith lives. Faith lives. How some Christians can deny this is difficult for me to understand. Do you believe that you were once dead in your sins, spiritually dead, and then you were made alive? Now, would it make sense to say, oh, I was dead, now I'm alive, but I'm still laying here exactly as if I were dead. I haven't moved a muscle. You would say, well, no, you're still dead then. <laughs> Living people live. Faith lives. And faith, by the grace and power of God, produces a life of love and good works. Verse 24. Well, we arrive at the conclusion. That's verse 39. If it wasn't clear, this should clear it all up. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. Notice the pairing. But of those who have faith and preserve their souls. There are only two kinds of people in the world. It's not black or white. It's not rich or poor. It's not privileged and unprivileged. It's there are those who deny or reject Christ. They go to destruction. There are those who have faith and they go to salvation. They go to eternal life. There are those two. He is seemingly quite bold. We, he says, we, you know, you and me, his readers and, or his hearers and himself, we're, 
We're not of those who will be destroyed. Salvation is our portion. How does he know that? How can he say that? Well, I'm not sure that humanly speaking, uh, the author, the preacher, is uh, speaking infallibly, even though the Bible itself surely is infallible. But it's simply the reasonable and logical conclusion to their actual history. He said, if you have faith in Jesus, you worship God, you have hope, and you do good works. And when I look back at your life, I've known you a while now, and guess what? You worship God, you have hope, even under suffering, and you do good works, even when it costs you everything in this life. What else could he conclude except that they are, in fact, the possessors of true faith and are on the road to heaven? No, they're not there yet. Yes, they have to endure. Yes, it's a necessity, but they're on that road. This is why you and I can say to one another, you know, you're a, you're a Christian, brother, sister. Now, we don't know that infallibly. Could one of you, could I deny the faith? Could we throw it all away? Could we shrink back? Yes, it could happen. It happens. Not to a real Christian, but someone who merely made a profession. But ordinarily, when someone makes the profession and lives a life consonant with it, we say, ah, ah, a Christian. That's not natural. That's the supernatural grace of God at work. That's the only way that happens in a person's life. Since his hearers have endured, he urges them and expects them to continue to endure. They have faith, he says. It is their possession and with it, they do something that I hope a few of you kind of twitched. They preserve their souls. Wait a minute, what? What? Are you, say, are you saying they're saving themselves? I mean, what, what kind of language is that? People who have true faith preserve their souls. Really? Yes. Yes, really. This reinforces and summarizes the earlier teaching of this portion of scripture. Because this is the language of means. Usually the Bible talks about salvation in, in the language of ultimate cause. What's the ultimate cause of your salvation? Maybe, I mean, there's multiple answers we could give. The, the love of God in eternity past uh, electing me to, um, the sheer grace of God. Um, the work of Christ on my behalf, right? Those are, those are more ultimate causes because they all are initiated in God. They begin there, and that's where our, our salvation flows, flows from. And that's right. That's most proper. But because God has chosen that the way men are saved is not as mechanical robots, but as image bearers, as, as people with a will, with hearts, with souls, who are alive. Jesus doesn't believe for you. You must believe. God doesn't repent for you. You must repent. The Holy Spirit doesn't endure for you. You must endure. 
Now, those of you who know yourself even a little bit, or are perhaps naturally faint-hearted, you know, oh, then I'm, I'm, I'm lost. <laughs> I, I'm in real trouble here if, if this depends on me. Listen to the rest of the story. Listen to the way this fits together. This is the means, the method, the way God has ordained for you to be saved. The way to salvation is by enduring, by keeping, by preserving. But it is God who preserves you. Of course you can't do that by yourself. Any more than you could raise yourself from the dead the first time. You can't keep yourself alive either. Well, then how can I preserve my soul? God preserves, so you persevere. God fills you with grace, so you preserve yourself. This is why pastors in 1 Timothy are called to watch their life and doctrine closely, because if you do so, you will save yourself and your hearers. What, Paul? Yes, he's simply talking about the use of means. There are ways that God keeps his people. Worship, meeting, good deeds, hope, on and on the list goes. If you don't do those things, I don't know why you expect to be in heaven at the end of your life. If you do those things, they're appointed by God. God blesses them and chooses to use them. No, he didn't have to. Yes, he could have done it another way. Uses them to get you safely to heaven. So use them. You have a need of endurance. It is God who is at work in us to will and to do. He who began a good work in you. See, there's God's initiating work. He will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. In Pilgrim's Progress, Christian saw a fire burning on one side of a wall, and he couldn't understand why it didn't go out. That's you, that's me, with that little fire. Splutter, almost gone, little flame, oh, suddenly bursts up. He says, how how does this fire keep burning? What did he do? He brought him to the back side of the wall, and he showed him, and there's a man pouring oil onto the fire from the back. That's the Holy Spirit giving you grace. You will endure. If you have faith, you will persevere. It's not a work that you have to somehow uh, uh, urge yourself to do in your own strength. God is at work in you. You are safe. And you will be saved. Three very quick uses. One for Christians, one for unbelievers, and one for those of you who aren't so sure. Christian, I hope you see the importance that worship, hope, love, good works, meeting, and encouragement play in your salvation. Some of you are limping to heaven because you only do a few, you only use a few of the means God has given you. It's like only eating macaroni and never eating anything else. Well, of 
course you're all hunched over and not healthy. As delicious as macaroni is. They are not just things to make your life look and feel better. Well, that's the way I'll have a better marriage. That's the way my kids will obey me more. That's the way I'll have a better job. No. This is life or death, heaven or hell. This is how you preserve your souls. So don't shrink back either from Christ or any of these means that he has given to you. What am I urging you to do? I'm urging you to live by faith. That's what I'm urging you to do. Using the means that God has given, asking him to bless them. And don't be surprised when he does and you arrive safely at heaven. Oh, and by the way, and are very useful to your brothers and sisters in the meantime. Yes. Second use, if you're an unbeliever. Some of you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ. He's been presented to you by family, friends, and pastors. But so far, you have rejected him. Yes, you have. You have rejected him. You have not said yes to his command. Please understand that to reject Christ is to choose eternal death. It, it is. This isn't me. This is, this is the word of God. There's only one way for you to be right with God and men, and that's through the perfect life and sacrifice of Jesus Christ for your sins. So I urge you to place your faith in Jesus and be saved. Thirdly, perhaps you're here and saying, you know, I'm not actually sure which category I'm in. One of the tests that you should give yourself is the one found in this scripture. It's not the only test, it's not the only way to evaluate, but it's a very important one. And it's one that's called up to mind in scripture over and over again. Ask yourself the question, what is my actual history? Don't play if games with yourself. Ask yourself, what is my actual history? Is it one of denying and disobeying Christ or one of believing and doing the will of God? Now, of course, in one sense, every person in this room would probably say, well, it's a little of both, it's mixed. But what is the predominant direction in your life? I mean, are you dead or are you alive? Do you believe or do you not? Do you love God and the brethren or not? One of the ways to answer that is simply to look at your history and say, am I, which one am I living out? <laughs> I mean, am I moving farther and farther away from the truths and standards of following Christ or Am I moving closer? Now, again, there are other things that scripture would present to us uh, to help us make these evaluations. But this is a significant one. And one that if you are unsure, I really hope you will take up. Because if you're a real Christian, God wants you to be assured. He wants you to have not some kind of bare knowledge, but confidence. There's that word again confidence 
And if you are not, if you find after examination, I'm not a Christian. I really don't have any grounds for thinking that I am. Well, let me just say, it's really good that you've come to that conclusion now while there's still life and there's still hope, there's still opportunity for you to turn to him. There is time to repent and believe the gospel and be saved. Let's pray.